Next on Book TV's Afterwards, former George W. Bush administration special advisor for cybersecurity, Richard Clark, discusses the growing role that cyberspace plays in war and national security. He's interviewed by Dustin Volz, cybersecurity and intelligence reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. Let's uh, dive right in. Uh, Dick, uh, this is not your first book on cybersecurity. You actually wrote one with your same uh, co-author, Robert Kanaki, 10 years ago called Cyber War. Why follow that up with uh, this book now, and what's changed in the past decade? Well, first of all, thank you for reading the book, and, uh, and uh, you may find some of your work, uh, some of your great reporting referenced uh, in the book, uh, all appropriately footnoted. Um, yeah, 10 years ago, Rob Kanaki and I wrote a book called Cyber War, and we said things then uh, that militaries were going to become dominant in the threat landscape in cyberspace, uh, that militaries would you know, attack each other in, in cyber war. Uh, we said infrastructure would become part of the target set, uh, and there could be large infrastructure damage and, and, uh, and destruction, uh, not just stealing information, but damage and destruction. And at the time, we were criticized. And there was a great review in Wired that said, file under fiction. Um, so, you know, at one level, I think Rob and I decided to write this book 10 years later to say, na 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 you know, <laughs> we were right. Um, but we also wanted to say, what has changed in those 10 years? Uh, and while we were right about some things, we were wrong about others. Um, Yes, the militaries have become uh, the dominant threat actors. I think if you look at the, at the major attacks in the last three years, they've all been military. Uh, Iranian, North Korean, Chinese, Russian militaries, American. Um, if you uh, look at the, uh, the target set, they are going after infrastructure. Uh, just last month, the United States more or less admitted that it penetrated the Russian electric power grid after claiming that they had done it to us. So, yeah, infrastructure targets. And it, it is destruction, not just stealing information. If you look at the NotPetya attack, the largest uh, destructive attack we've had so far, over $10 billion worth of damage, it wiped out networks. It just didn't attack them and steal information. So we were right about all of that. What we were wrong about was we said 10 years ago, as everybody did 10 years ago, you can't defend yourself. Um, uh, we were talking to Dmitry Olpervich from CrowdStrike the other day, and he said, well, you know, you can have all the defenses in the world, but if the Mossad is coming for you, you're screwed. Um, we say in, in the book that the, the major difference in the landscape right now from 10 years ago is there are corporations, big corporations, admittedly, uh, but there are corporations in America that are pretty secure. Uh, are they invulnerable to attack? No, but they're resilient to it. Uh, can someone penetrate their network? Uh, sure, because there's no perimeter anymore. But can they do real damage to those companies? Uh, and the answer is no. Uh, if you look at that NotPetya attack, there's a long list of American companies that were in Ukraine uh, that had their networks in the U.S. destroyed. Uh, 
But there's also a list of companies that were in Ukraine that didn't. And what we try to ask is, what's the difference? What makes a company uh, able to be resilient uh, and defend itself well today, while others don't? Um, there are lots of answers to that question, one of which, the predominant, I think, determinative answer, is money. How much do they spend? Uh, I know it's a, it's a gross metric, uh, but if they're spending 3% of their IT budget uh, on cybersecurity, which is kind of normal for a lot of companies, they're going to get hacked, uh, and they're going to get hurt. Uh, and if they're spending 8 9 10%, on the high side, we found companies that were spending 17%. But if you're in that 8 9 10% of your IT budget uh, on security products and services, year after year after year, you can achieve a lot of security given today's technology. Because the defensive technologies have evolved a lot. You mentioned um, Dmitry Alperovich, the co-founder and CTO of uh, CrowdStrike, which just had a, a rather successful uh, IPO for their, their firm. Yeah. Uh, in the book, you actually um, discuss uh, uh, sort of an aphorism he had about uh, back in the day, there used to be two types of companies, right. those that were hacked and knew it and those that were hacked and didn't know it, and that now he and others essentially believe there are three companies, those two, and then in addition, those that are essentially successfully repelling the attack, as you said. Yeah. Money, you mentioned, is a, a key factor. Uh, is that it? Are there no. other factors? What else has led us to create that third class of company? So money buys good product, uh, and there are good products. CrowdStrike's a great one, but there are many others. Uh, and what, what we saw was, if you go back, I started in this business in 1997, okay? When you wanted to defend your network in 1997, you could buy one of three products. You could buy all three. You could buy a firewall. Uh, which wasn't very good. You could buy an antivirus system, which wasn't very good. And in 1997, there was a third product you could buy, which was an intrusion detection system. So you could have a, a, a blinky light that would go off all the time saying someone was trying to get in. If you wanted to spend more money, you really couldn't. We interviewed uh, people from major Wall Street banks uh, that are running networks with 50, 60 70 different uh, IT security products uh, from almost as many vendors. Uh, and so they have the, the really difficult task uh, of integrating all of that. But if you look at you know, someone like J.P. Morgan, they're spending uh, $600, $700 billion a year, uh, million dollars a year, $600, $700 million a year um, trying to do IT security. Uh, and they have thousands of IT security people uh, running that network. Uh, so they can buy a lot of products. The products have evolved. They've gotten very specialized. When there is a new threat, uh, a product comes out pretty quickly after the threat does. Uh, you have to constantly be buying, constantly be updating. But the other thing that's changed and I know this sounds wonky, uh, is governance. It used to be the IT security person was way down in the organizational hierarchy uh, and reporting to the deputy CIO, maybe. Maybe not even to the CIO, maybe to the deputy CIO. 
Never saw the people running the company. Now, um, you go to a, a quarterly board meeting of a major company, uh, and on the agenda every quarter is a report from the chief information security officer. And she's in the room, uh, and she's briefing on metrics uh, and showing what's happened since the last quarterly meeting uh, and showing what the risks are uh, and what has to be done. Uh, and that's just part and parcel now of a board meeting. Uh, and that CISO, the Chief Information Security Officer, is now reporting way up on the food chain. And in the really good companies, uh, reporting to the CEO. Uh, we talk about uh, a company in the book. Um, they don't like to use their name because no one wants to be a target. Um, but they were in the Ukraine, uh, and they got hacked. But no damage was done from the NotPetya attack. Uh, and it just so happens that the chief information security officer reports to the chairman of the board right over everybody else. Uh, and when he wants money, he doesn't have a budget. He just spends. Uh, and when he has a problem uh, where someone's denying him what he needs, he talks to the chairman of the board. Now, that's unusual. That's also an example of a company that is really secure. So I write a lot of stories about uh, bad things happening, uh, companies getting hacked, uh, critical infrastructure getting hacked, um, Russia, Iran, the other adversaries you mentioned doing very bad things. And uh, I'm not sure I share all the optimism, um, but maybe it's just that uh, exposure to sort of the, the bad things happening. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, you know, as you've seen sort of this growth in the private sector, um, governance, money, you know, investment and so forth, um, is it not also true that the adversaries are getting better at what they're doing, oh, yeah. shutting down power grids and oh, so yeah. forth? Totally. Uh, the, the, the threat actors are very sophisticated. Uh, and one of the things, we you have a chapter in the book about uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence. And as you know, you go to all these uh, cybersecurity uh, conferences, every company now is advertising machine learning in the cloud. Uh, it's all, yeah. all buzzwords. Uh, very few of them actually have anything that's really sophisticated machine learning. Uh, but it turns out the adversarial AI, adversarial artificial intelligence, is a thing. Uh, and I think right now it's only being used by governments, uh, but it is being used by governments. And we talk in the, in the, in the book about a time the United States government kind of showed itself a little uh, a few years ago uh, at the hacker convention Black Hat, where DARPA, uh, the Pentagon's research arm, uh, sponsored a competition uh, among universities uh, for adversarial AI, uh, where they had, I think it was five large devices on stage, uh, and at, at the signal, they all turned on, and the humans walked away, and for the next couple of hours, there was no human intervention. And, and all of these artificial intelligence programs attacked a target, uh, a very well-defended target. And they had to map the target, figure out how to get in, how to get around the defenses, how to get the flag and capture the flag, and then how to get it out. Uh, because it turns out if you're, if you're trying to steal information, uh, getting in is only half the problem. Um, and they did it. Uh, they got through very sophisticated defenses. 
uh, with no human in the loop. Uh, I think that's happening now. Uh, And it means that the response time that you have to defend a network uh, gets down to minutes, uh, not days or hours. Another um, metaphor that you mentioned in the book is is the one of glass houses. And this is sort of a theme throughout about offense and defense, as you were mentioning, and sort of leveling that playing field. Uh, And one of the things that you you say is uh, uh, the United States has the sharpest stones of any country in the world, but we live in the glassiest house. Uh, What do you mean by that? Well, in in the last book, we we used a different phrase, which was uh, people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw code. Um, We are really good on the offense as a nation. Um, I know NSA and uh, CIA get uh, bad reviews from time to time for not defending their their own attack tools, and their, their attack tools get stolen and used by other yeah. people. Um, but the attack tools that are stolen are several years old. Uh, and at any given time, the attack tools that they're using are really good. Uh, and if you're being attacked by the United States government, you're not going to know it. Uh, they're, they're very stealthy. So there's a lot of tendency in, in the government, both Rob and I have served in the White House on cyber policy jobs. Uh, there's a lot of tendency in the government to say, well, we're really good. We can just go on the offense. We can deter the other guy. Um, and very little attention or insufficient attention paid on the fact that there are key parts of our infrastructure and our government uh, that are really easy to attack and really easy to destroy and to disrupt things. Uh, the good news that we talk about in the book is some major corporations. The bad news uh, is the government and the military are really quite bad at defense. Uh, and therefore, we do see our own cyber weapons being stolen and used against us. We do see uh, the Defense Science Board, uh, the Government Accountability Office, uh, year after year issuing reports that are very expensive, with very sophisticated technological weapon systems are easily hacked. Uh, and the list of those weapon systems that GAO and uh, the Defense Science Board have talked about, is staggering. It's the F-35, it's the Freedom-class uh, naval combatant, it's the THAAD and Patriot anti-missile systems. It goes on and on. Uh, and we paint a picture uh, that someday, if the United States has to go to war uh, against a sophisticated cyber opponent, we may trot all of these very shiny objects out onto the battlefield, and they won't work because they've been hacked. I want to get to uh, war and escalation in a moment, um, but we'll, we'll table that for now. Um, another theme in the book that you grapple with a lot is this dynamic of the government and the private sector and who ultimately should be responsible for national defense in cyberspace, national cybersecurity. And, and you and your co-author ultimately come down on the side of the, the private sector should be first and foremost dealing with that uh, with support uh, and nudges from the government, but that the government taking over as some others have advocated would be a bad idea. Is it just because of what you just mentioned that they can't even secure their own networks and so forth? Or is there uh, a more, are there more reasons to why? You well, that, that would be a good place to start, yeah. right? If you can't defend yourself, why, why, why should you be defending other people? 
there's a tendency among some CEOs, uh, frankly, and some corporate boards uh, to say, you want me to spend all this money defending against the Russian military or the Chinese military? Uh, I thought we had the Defense Department to protect us against foreign militaries. I thought I paid taxes for that. Of course, a lot of these corporations don't pay taxes, but that's another story. Um, and they kind of think, well, we should just have Cyber Command defend U.S. Steel or defend Wells Fargo Bank. Well, if you go to talk to the banks and say, you really want to hand over your defense uh, to Cyber Command? Uh, they're horrified uh, at the thought. Uh, they don't want the U.S. government running around in their networks. The U.S. government doesn't know anything about how to run a bank network. That's a very complicated thing. Uh, and there's nothing in the government like it. They don't know how to run a power grid, uh, how to secure a power grid. They don't have the expertise. Expertise is in short supply. People are, highly qualified people are in short supply. Uh, so w we think this, this panacea of let's just have Cyber Command defend us, um, it's a pipe dream. Um, individual companies have to defend themselves. That's the bottom line. They can get help. Uh, they can outsource security. There are managed security service companies that will come in and, and run the security of your network if you can't do it yourself. Um, if you put your uh, network in the cloud, uh, Amazon's going to do a pretty good job uh, of securing it. And then you can layer your own security over and above that. Uh, or have a managed security provider do that. Uh, what we think the government should do uh, is set a level playing field uh, by having smart regulation. Uh, that doesn't mean the kind of regulation that says your screw has to be uh, a quarter of an inch and turn it to the right three times. Uh, but rather, smart regulation says, this is the goal. Uh, California got a lot of criticism last year for passing legislation that said, Internet of Things devices must be secure. And they didn't say much more than that. And people said, well, what does that mean? We right. need a standard. Well, yeah, but it's also a pretty good start of saying, you've got a legal obligation. If you're putting a device uh, on the Internet that runs something like a heart-lung machine uh, or an IV drip machine or... or um, or a power grid, um, you need to secure it. You figure out how to do that. Uh, and get industry together and come up with industry standards so that they're realistic. Uh, and if they're not good enough, then the government can look at those standards and say, well, you know, I don't think that's enough. Uh, which has happened. Uh, it's happened with the power grid. The industry did get together and come up with their own regulations. And they weren't good enough. Uh, and now the government is saying, well, I think you need to do more. play uh, devil's advocate, I guess, on the title of your book, though. It is the fifth domain. Uh, and, and the other four, uh, land, air, sea, and space, are traditionally defended by the government, by the military. So, I mean, the concept that you mentioned earlier, too, about uh, a cyber, cyber attacks spiraling into sort of a kinetic war. Yeah. Um, well, why not just, you know, and we, and we see adversaries do things like disrupt elections, take down power grids. 
um, you know, uh, there are worries about planes being hacked and loss of life as a result of cyber attacks. Given that the risks are that high, why not just throw our hands up, give the Pentagon, uh, you know, a few hundred billion dollars to dedicate to securing the fifth domain and taking the lead on it, as some others have suggested? They don't know how. Uh, and the knowledge about how to secure these various private networks really is in the hands of the industries. Uh, you mentioned airplanes. I've done a lot of work uh, with the aviation industry. Uh, and what strikes me about the aviation industry is it's probably a metaphor for other industries. Individual airlines, some of them are pretty good. The product, despite what's happened recently with uh, the 737 MAX, the products are pretty damn good. Mm -hmm. The engines are great. Uh, the aircraft are generally great in terms of cybersecurity. But then there's this whole lower level uh, in the supply chain uh, of companies you've never heard of that all the airlines use or all the airports use uh, to provide an infrastructure layer. They're not regulated. Uh, and most of them are not secure. And if you take down this no-name company that no one ever heard of, all of a sudden all of the flight controls uh, that pilots have, their little iPads with the, the, the flight plan on it, don't work. Or all of a sudden all the kiosks in the airports where you get your ticket don't work. Um, so what the government can do, I think, is say there are requirements not only to secure your own product and to secure your own network, but to secure your own ecosystem. Uh, to, to identify the supply chain, to do, identify the interdependencies uh, and have a, an industry work together to assure that the entire industry is secure. And to be clear, you, you say in the book, um, government does have a role to play here, oh, yeah. whether it's nudging uh, regulation in the right direction, whether it's information sharing. Uh, you know, you helped set up uh, some of the first information sharing analysis centers yep. uh, when, when you were in government. Um, so it does have a, have a role to play, but it's, it's sort of a, uh, uh, it's sometimes a, a less uh, blunt one, I guess. Yeah. Uh, to, well, I just to, to that end, uh, I'm curious how you think the Trump administration is currently doing on cybersecurity. <laughs> Either, um, I guess we'll start with, with working with private industry and helping secure on the defensive side um, you know, our critical infrastructure. Well... They're the first administration in a long time to write a national strategy. Uh, and as a guy who had, I've, I've written two of them, right. um, the national strategy of the Trump administration is pretty good. I mean, you know, I'd give it a B plus. It borrows a lot from your previous strategies. That's not the only reason. <laughs> but yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, I think it's disconnected from what the government's doing. And that's always been the problem with national strategies. Is it's fine to have a strategy you have to have a governmental mechanism to implement the strategy. Uh, and the Trump administration has gone about, for odd reasons, uh, disassembling uh, the parts of the government that we need. You know, we used to have a senior person in the government. You could say, that person is in charge of cybersecurity, uh, policy and uh, implementation. We don't have that anymore. Uh, early in the administration, they got a great guy named Rob Joyce, uh, who used to work for NSA, still does. Uh, he was there in the White House. Everyone in the industry, in the expertise, uh, everyone thought, wow, well, that's good. 
Uh, and then John Bolton came in and fired him. It's back in the NSA, but he didn't replace him at the White House. Uh, at the State Department, we had a small team, uh, too small, but nonetheless we had a team uh, worrying about international norms and perhaps even arms control negotiations someday. And we really need cyber norms and uh, international norms and, and arms control. Uh, they get rid of them. Uh, so, uh, on paper, the strategy looks good. There's very little actually going on uh, to implement it. And in terms of regulation, uh, the Trump administration literally says any any new regulation uh, has to uh, identify two regulations uh, to abolish before you can have one new one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure that's a scientifically derived uh, formula. Uh, but they won't regulate. The regulation is anathema to this administration, uh, and frankly, to you know a lot of people in Congress. Uh, and so they say no regulation, but the federal government does regulation in cyber all the time. We list in the book, I think, twelve different uh, government agencies that have cyber regulation at the federal level. They're all inconsistent. Uh, they were never developed holistically. Uh, what we call for is let's have a clean slate on, on the federal regulation. Let's have all the regulators come together uh, and together figure out an architecture that makes sense. And then in, in different industries, you can have different feature sets. But you ought to have, if there are differences uh, in those regulations, they ought to be differences that we intentionally made not that we stumbled into. Because in addition to, at the corporate level, trying to figure out what regulation I have to worry about, and they're, and they're inconsistent, then you have regulation at the state level. And the reason you have regulation, great regulations, I think actually coming out of New York uh, and some out of California, the reason you have regulation at the state level is the federal government's not doing it. Uh, to get back to Ambassador Bolton, um, uh, you know, he and his defenders would argue they um, they didn't push out Rob Joyce from his position at the as White House cyber czar. His detail was up, and he left. But you are right that he my detail was up every year, and I stayed for ten years. I mean, you are correct that once he left, uh, the position was eliminated. So there is no cybersecurity coordinator at the White House. Um, so that might be one indication. But I think uh, both his critics and his uh, supporters would say he certainly disrupted things uh, uh, at the White House on cyber policy. And so one of those specific things. Um, we're going to get a little wonky here, but this is one of my favorite topics, is um, President Trump last summer signing National Security Presidential Memorandum 13, yeah. a classified directive that yeah. effectively rescinded and reversed uh, policies uh, that were uh, set in place under the Obama administration that required an elaborate interagency process any time uh, Cyber Command wanted to use, or the Pentagon broadly wanted to use, offensive cyber operations. Uh, now, under um, even though it's classified from what we understand about the memorandum, uh, the Pentagon is said to have a much freer hand in launching these sort of uh, offensive cyber attacks. Um, I'm curious what you think of, of that approach. Uh, is that is that necessary to deal with Russia, Iran, others? And uh, are you worried that that might lead to things spiraling out of control? Well, we talk a lot about it in the book. Before Trump signed uh, that national security memo, which is, as you say, NSPM 13, Before that happened, 
the Congress did something that almost nobody noticed at the time. Uh, in the annual defense authorization bill, uh, there was language slipped in that said, Pre- preparation of the battlefield, which is one of those uh, buzzwords, buzz, buzz phrases, preparation of the battlefield through cyber activity in peacetime is considered normal military activity. Now, if you read that, you might not understand it at all. It's, it's kind of opaque what that means. What that means is that our military, in peacetime, can hack its way into foreign military command, control, communications, and weapon systems, and implant logic bombs, backdoors, whatever you want to call them, so that when we go to war, we can push a button and that weapon will die, or that network will die. Because you can't do that when the war starts. You have to have done that way in advance. It takes weeks, sometimes months, to do this kind of work. Uh, And you have to keep it updated. Our military wasn't doing that. That's the secret uh, which we revealed in the book, that despite the fact everybody thought Cyber Command was out there running around, uh, you know, hacking their way into things, it wasn't. It wasn't hacking its way into foreign military networks uh, because it wasn't authorized. Uh, and because the Obama administration really did put in a very serious, serious of steps that you had to go through to get approval after Stuxnet. After Stuxnet, right. Because they thought, they were lied to about Stuxnet. They were told, no one will ever know it was us. Right. Uh, the Iranians won't notice it for years. Uh, and it will never leave the, the one building. Well, all of that turned out not to be true. The Iranians figured it out pretty quickly with the help of some, um, some people in Europe. Um, it did leave the building. Uh, even though there was no network connection into the building. That's another story, how it did that. But it did, and it ran around the world. Other people caught it uh, and decompiled it. It didn't do any damage to anybody else uh, because of the way it was written. It can only really destroy that one facility, uh, which is a brilliant piece of software, by the way, when you can do that. Uh, But other people caught it, decompiled it, and then started building their weapons off of it. Uh, So the Obama administration said, you know, that didn't work. It didn't stop the Iranian program. It didn't do as much damage as you told me it would do. Uh, We did get caught. Uh, We were the first nation state to be seen engaged in an act of cyber war. Uh, We're going to make it very hard for you to do that again. Uh, And as always in Washington, the pendulum is either over here or it's over here. Uh, So we have the Obama administration really making it difficult on the military uh, to do preparation of the battlefield. Uh, and hard on the CIA to, uh, to do the kind of things like Stuxnet. Uh, and now we have Trump way over here uh, devolving that power. Uh, and I think excessively. Um, look, I have a prejudice from having worked for three presidents in the White House, and I know that when an agency has authority to go out and do something, like invade a country, uh, or, or hack something, or run a covert operation. Uh, if it goes wrong, it's the president who gets blamed. And so the president has a right and an obligation uh, to have some White House oversight and supervision. Uh, he can't give that up. Uh, and I think the president has given that up to an excessive degree. 
uh, into this BM13. The counterpoint, I think, uh, that some of the president's critics would say, we don't want him to have that authority, that maybe you're right that the White House should have oversight, but in this case, we trust the Pentagon more than the White House. Do you agree <laughs> with that, or is that well, flawed logic? Um, you know, that's a, that's a tough one, because it's hard to imagine who in the White House would be doing a good job of that right now. Uh, you talked about, um, uh, just speaking of, of White House scenarios, uh, you, you brought up Iran, which has been in the news a lot lately, given the escalations uh, uh, between the United States and, and uh, between Washington and Tehran. Uh, in the book, you have this really vivid uh, uh, hypothetical scenario where hostilities in the Middle East between Israel and Iran uh, sort of reach uh, an apex uh, that force the United States to, to become involved to defend uh, our ally. Um, but in this, in this scenario, you describe a scene in the Situation Room where the president is informed um, that the, the assistance from the United States has essentially been blocked through Iranian cyber attacks. And then the scene ends with the president turning to the Secretary of Defense and saying, do it, begin bombing Iran. Yeah. Do you think that is a scenario that is um, truly possible? And if so, is it uh, a remark about this White House or any White Houses and how, this could, uh, how these cyber wars could escalate? Well, it, it's a short piece of fiction uh, in the book, uh, and I think it's realistic. After that piece of fiction in the book, we, we take it apart. We analyze the fiction, mm -hmm. and we say, all right, this happened in the, in the fictional scenario. Could it happen? This happened. Could it happen? We go through and, and, and deconstruct it. Uh, and our conclusion is, yes, it could happen. Um, that, in fact, it almost did. I, when the, three weeks before the book came out, the United States did, <laughs> did a cyber attack on Iran, Rob Kanaki, uh, my co-author, and I looked at each other and said, oh, no, our scenario is going to take place before our book is out. Um, it almost did. Um, I think it could. Um, what we see in the scenario uh, is Israel gets attacked. You know, Israel has, in fact, been bombing Iranian, in the real world, has been bombing Iranian facilities in Syria. Uh, this happens a lot. Uh, and at some point, Iran's not going to take it anymore. And they're going to launch an attack back on Israel. Uh, and if they use their friends Hezbollah uh, and Hamas uh, and all of the rockets and missiles that they have in the region, uh, it could overwhelm Israeli defenses. Uh, it, it, Israel likes to say it has a great anti-missile system, uh, and it does, but numbers can overwhelm things like that. Uh, and so in the scenario, they turn to the United States, as they did in the 73 war, uh, and they say, quick, hurry up, send us these things. Uh, and in the 73 war, the United States under uh, Richard Nixon, actually, uh, did launch an immediate outreach, uh, established an air bridge, uh, and sent Israel uh, arms that went straight from the airport straight into battle. Um, and it turned the tide, and Israel won the 73 war. Could we do that again? Well, no. Not if uh, we have a, an enemy, uh, Iran or Russia or somebody, who wants to attack the logistics system. Uh, to do that resupply, the railroads have to work. Uh, certain ports have to work. 
electric power plants supporting them have to work. So even if you don't attack the U.S. military, if you just go after the infrastructure, the civilian infrastructure that the military relies on, you can stop the resupply. We could um, spend all day talking about the likelihood of a cyber attack spiraling into apocalyptic war in the Middle East, but um, there are other parts of your book I want to get to. Um, you have a, another chapter discussing the need for what you call uh, a Schengen Accord for the Internet. Um, and in that chapter, you write that while we fully endorse the vision of an open, and interoperable, secure, and reliable Internet, we are no longer convinced that version of the Internet will be also be global. It is likely time to take a new approach. Um, that seems pretty pessimistic. Uh, why do you not believe that it could be global anymore, and what is that new approach? This chapter of the book is designed to be controversial and provocative. Why not? That's why I asked. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're putting out an idea out there, and the idea is basically this. Um, Schengen, by the way, is a town in, I think, Holland. Uh, but Schengen is the name of an agreement among a bunch of countries, most of whom are in the EU, not all of the EU, uh, that eliminated borders, internal borders, uh, but established a, a perimeter. Uh, what we're suggesting is maybe we want to think about how that might happen in cyberspace. If you're going to have countries like Russia, if you're going to have countries like Iran, North Korea, and China that are international scoff laws uh, when it comes to cybersecurity, uh, that will not cooperate on investigations, uh, that will not punish people in their countries who, who uh, are cyber criminals attacking us, or when their government is in fact the cyber criminal attacking us, as in the case of North Korea, maybe we ought to say you can't play in our yard. Uh, maybe we want to say this is a protected garden uh, of like-minded nations that do help each other, uh, that do prosecute cybercrime, that do share information, that do have security standards, and that do agree on a set of international norms. And if you're not part of that, if you won't agree on those norms, if you won't actually implement them, then you don't get to play. Uh, we have in mind something that we did uh, back in the, in the Clinton administration with uh, money laundering. We got a like-minded group of nations together. Initially, it was a small group. And we said, let's establish standards for banking, standards that will allow us to stop money laundering. And then anybody who doesn't live up to those standards doesn't get to clear their money through our banks. That's, that's a big threat. Right. Uh, and so we went around to countries and said, this is a model law against money laundering. You have to pass that through your legislature, and then you have to enforce it. And we'll give you a few years to do that. But if at the end of that time you haven't done it, your currency is not going to be cleared with the EU, the pound, or the dollar. Have a nice day. Um, they all passed those laws, uh, and most of them implemented them. What we're saying here is like-minded nations establish international norms uh, on cybercrime and, and, and cyber war uh, and mutual cooperation and mutual defense, 
And if you're not part of that, uh, then your access to our internet is going to be rate limited. You're not going to be able to just pop into our uh, cyberspace. Uh, you're going to have to connect to it, sure, but you'll connect to it in a way uh, that it goes through a, uh, a scanning system uh, and it's rate limited. Is the idea there, I guess, to um, use this coalition of the willing to eventually apply enough pressure on the Russias, the Irans, the Chinas, in hopes that they finally decide to come along and they want to participate in that sort of more open Internet? Or is it the recognition that the Internet has become, you know, impossibly balkanized and that we're just never going to see eye to eye on these issues and so we just, they're, they're a different world? Now, the creators of the Internet uh, had this idea that it would be one free, open system without walls. That didn't happen. Uh, and we should not continue to pretend that it's going to happen or pretend it hasn't already stopped happening. Uh, there is a great wall of China, a great firewall of China. Uh, other nations are erecting similar firewalls. Uh, and from within those defenses, they're attacking our companies. Uh, and when we ask for them to stop, they don't. When we say... This individual uh, in your country did the hack, arrest him. They don't. Uh, there has to be some system uh, to deal with that. Uh, I don't want to advocate a system where we say, okay, Russia, okay, China, you can come in uh, and be a founding member of the new safe Internet. I don't trust them. Uh, I want to set up the new safe Internet uh, and run it. Uh, for a while, and if they have a problem and want to come in, then they should go through some trial period. Uh, but to have them in at the beginning is, is having the thieves in at the police conference. Speaking of those thieves, um, one of the countries that has been the best at leveraging the open Internet against us has been Russia. Obviously, I'm referring to the 2016 election and election interference, uh, both through social media, uh, probing of election infrastructure itself, um, could go down the list, hacking of democratic emails. Uh, you have a chapter discussing uh, election security. Um, and while you are, I think, optimistic uh, throughout the book uh, about a lot of the progress we've made in cybersecurity, I'm not so sure you're as optimistic in this realm. Yeah. Um, how are we doing on election security Awful. heading into 2020? <laughs> okay. why, why, uh, why so bad and what can we do to, to prepare for 2020? Well, we, get, we had a surprise attack on this country in, in 2016. Um, even when it was happening uh, and the Obama administration saw signs of it, they didn't see the whole uh, war uh, that the Russians were waging. They saw some of it, they didn't recognize its importance. Uh, we did not realize that in a very short period of time, most Americans had moved to getting their news from social media. Mm -hmm. We did not recognize how easy it was to manipulate social media. Uh, and so the Russians took things that they've been doing for a hundred years. They even have these great names for it. Kompromat, Disinformatia, Maskarovka. It's been in their doctrine for a hundred years. They took those things and empowered them on steroids by using the Internet uh, and using social media. Um, we weren't ready for that. We still haven't established regulations or passed laws to regulate uh, social media. Uh, and so all while Facebook and, 
and Google and others can say they're doing good things, uh, we don't really know. There's no auditing of what they're doing. There's no standards of what they're doing. Uh, And frankly, we know the Russians are still doing it, Uh, creating hatred, pitting Americans against Americans, going on both sides of every issue. Why is the Russian government pretending to be Americans talking about vaccinations on both sides of the issue? Uh, And you can do that on every issue. Uh, The Russian government's still in our social media, whipping up dissent, hatred, causing us to hate each other, to fight each other, to focus inward. Uh, Not just on the election, but every day. Uh, And the Congress has not done its job. It's held hearings, very nice hearings, hasn't passed any laws. Uh, No federal regulatory agency has. And in the past, in in the administrations, Republican and Democrat, that I served in, if you had a big new problem like this, you appoint somebody in the White House to be in charge of it. You give her all the power she needs and all the resources she needs uh, to coordinate a government response. Who is that person on election security? No one. You've got some people over DHS trying to do good work. There's some people in the FBI trying to do good work. Some people in NSA and Cyber Command. But there's no coordinated strategy. There's, There's no... Uh, funding, special funding of the effort. So in addition to countering the Russian activity uh, through social media, we also have to counter the Russian activity going against the election system itself. 35 states, 39 states now we realize were hacked. Uh, The FBI has been really slow and DHS have been really slow in admitting that uh, and explaining the extent of the hacks. If you want to defend the electoral system, you've got to defend the campaigns, you've got to defend the parties, you've got to defend the candidates. We give secret service protection to presidential candidates, but we don't get, give them cyber protection. Mm-hmm. Then you've got to defend the data, the voting data registration, uh, which the Russians hacked into mm-hmm. in many states. Who's on the rolls? Uh, because there are ways of manipulating that to cause to change outcome. Then you have to worry about the election machines. Then you have to worry about the reporting up. There's a whole ecosystem. People say, oh, it's the responsibility of the states and counties. There are over 4,000 counties in this country. You think they have the cybersecurity skills in the county election board? I live in Rappahannock County, Virginia. I love the people in my county election board. They don't have the skills. They don't have the resources to protect against the Russian military. Here, unlike when I say corporations have to defend themselves, here, I think the government has to say, this is a federal election. We're going to have federal laws and federal standards and federal resources. Uh, And they're not saying that. They're saying... Those states can all decide on their standards. Those states all have to defend themselves. They have to come up with the money. That's crazy. The Constitution says, <clears throat> for the election of the president and the Congress, that the states shall do it. And then there's this wonderful word that I don't know if it exists anywhere else in the Constitution. It's the word but. And it says, but... <clears throat> 
the Congress may pass laws to do this. In other words, the Congress may preempt the states and the counties when it comes to federal elections. Why don't we? And I think the answer is Mitch McConnell. Uh, Why does Mitch McConnell not want that to happen? Why doesn't he want federal aid? Why doesn't he want federal standards? I think because he realizes that the people who are doing this manipulation are supporting his side. Congress did appropriate $380 million to the states in, I believe it was uh, early 2018. Uh, a lot of states say that's not enough, and we, we, certainly aren't seeing, the bucket. we certainly aren't seeing any new activity uh, in Congress well, we are, ahead of 2020. We are seeing it. <clears throat> we are seeing it on the House side. The House, side, right. the House has passed more uh, reasonable amounts of money. Uh, and Mitch McConnell has blocked it from even going to the floor and being voted on in the yeah. Senate. The majority leader has, has effectively said, whatever the House does, we won't take it up here. That's, yeah. that's great. Um, to focus on the disinformation side of things just a little bit more, um, I think one of the bolder proposals that you write about in Fifth Domain is this idea that um, going forward we could have a, a, a digital identity. I think you call it really you, um, mm-hmm. uh, really in the letter U, yeah. uh, which is a, a nice, uh, you, got, you should... You should patent that or something. We uh, probably should. Copyright it, yeah. copyright it. Um, but, uh, you know, when you talk about um, the social media companies needing to do more to root out these problems uh, and, and control the networks and then ideas like that, um, I'm just struck by the idea that anonymity has always been something that was sort of cherished on the Internet. Sure, and, and you can have it. Uh, but you can't have anonymity, you know, in, in banking. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm all in favor of your, your being able to go to a library uh, and anonymously and take out any book and sit down and read it, um, fine. But I don't want you to go into a bank and take out money anonymously. Yeah. Uh, I, there are places in, uh, in the physical world where you need to show ID. And there should be places in the virtual world mm-hmm. where you need to show ID. And that ID should be easy to get and easy to use. Uh, and it's, it's complicated right now. Uh, I have a password manager. You probably do, too, because you have... Uh, somebody said the average was 28 passwords. I counted. I have a lot more than 28 passwords. Um, and they're all different because you never want to use the same password twice. Big rule. Never use the same password twice. That's good advice for the viewers, yeah. Uh, we have a whole chapter on advice for individuals. Yeah, I'll get to that. Um, but passwords are silly. Passwords are, are 20th century technology. Uh, we really ought to be using something that's much more simple to use. And the, the American people don't trust the government to issue national ID cards. Okay, I get that. Uh, instead, every state issues a driver's license, which we use as a surrogate national ID card. Every, <coughs> every other country in the world has national ID cards. Mm-hmm. Moby does. But to this idea of, you know, we spoke earlier about the creating a, a, Schengen, a Schengen area for the <clears throat> Internet and wanting to have a coalition of the willing that stands for certain principles um, ag- uh, against Russia, against yeah. the Internet of China, against the Internet of some of these other authoritarian countries. Is there not a concern that by doing more to police our platforms, by uh, creating all these rules uh, about what can be said and how it can be said on, these, on the Internet, that we're not, in, in, in effect, actually becoming more like the systems that they... I don't want rules about what can be said on the Internet. I want rules about, for federal elections and, and, and for issues related to federal elections, I want to know who the people are who are saying it. I don't ever want anybody to regulate what I say or anybody else says. Uh, but if you're going to participate in this process, 
you should be able to do so uh, and say who you are. Um, and yeah, there are places where I want anonymity. Uh, certainly if you're a human rights worker in Egypt, <coughs> you ought to be able to use the Internet and, and communicate anonymously without the Egyptian you know, police coming in and getting you. Um, but the really use system that we have in mind is not a government system. Uh, we say MasterCard, which, by the way, is making a lot of progress doing something like what we propose. Uh, MasterCard or Visa or uh, Google, somebody, some multiple agencies, multiple organizations, should create federated identities. And just as I can go into any store today and use a Visa card or a MasterCard uh, or an American Express card, I should be able to go into any website and use a really you identification uh, that was issued by one of the certified uh, card issuers. Uh, And the technology exists. Uh, We just need the government to say, all right, if you live up to these standards and you create a really you ID system uh, and you live up to these security standards, we'll take it. We'll take it when you go on your, uh, to the IRS website. We'll take it when you go on to the Veterans uh, website. We'll take it when you go on to the Social Security website. Uh, we'll be the first adopters. If the government would do that, uh, the system could happen and we could get rid of passports and get rid of passwords and all sorts of other ideas. just want to move to a couple more topics before we close out. Um, I think one of the more controversial discussions in Washington about uh, cyber policy is uh, to what extent, if any, we are our own worst enemies. And what I mean by that is um, that the offensive tools we use that are designed to target uh, our adversaries come back and target us. And this is something that folks at the National Security Agency are very sensitive about, but you describe in the book an episode from 2017, the the WannaCry attack, that... um, it, it's there, there's still murky details about it, but essentially the theory holds that uh, uh, a group known as the Shadow Brokers, suspected to be linked to Russian intelligence, somehow acquired hacking tools from the National Security Agency, leaked them online, and then those were picked up by North Korean hackers and then used to launch, intentionally or accidentally, it's unclear, a global ransomware attack, a global de- uh, what appeared to be a ransomware attack and, and was, was more sophisticated than that that uh, affected uh, hundreds of countries around the globe, uh, severely impacted the uh, healthcare system in, in the United Kingdom. Um, more recently, we've had reporting that the uh, same tool from the NSA has been used in hacking on uh, ransomware attacks targeting Baltimore and other cities. The NSA has vigorously disputed this, uh, mm-hmm. to be clear, but this is an ongoing discussion we have about to what extent is the NSA actually doing uh, harming the American people and our allies more than our adversaries. Um, what do you make of this tension and do you think that we need more oversight, more public discussion about how the NSA is deciding whether or not to use these tools or disclose them to companies so they can, they can fix the problem? I think there are two issues here. One is the security of NSA and its contractors mm-hmm. because I think in all of these cases the investigations are likely to show that it was Booz Allen or some other contractor uh, working for NSA that was the, the problem in, in having the tools not secured. And if people were stealing our tanks or stealing our nuclear weapons, it, it would be a horror. Well, they're stealing our cyber weapons, uh, and, and so we should be equally horrified. Uh, 
the Obama administration thought it had addressed security at NSA, uh, and I think we need to do a better job, obviously. Um, I, I don't have a proposal for that, but there needs to be some way in which there can be oversight of the security at NSA and CIA by somebody else. That's one issue. And they're contractors. And, they, and the contractors need to suffer when they, when they screw up uh, because there's no penalty right now. The other issue, though, is when NSA or CIA becomes aware of a vulnerability, let's say in Windows, in some widely utilized system, what should they do? President Obama decided, based on recommendations of an outside uh, group of experts, of which I was one, uh, that the default value, the default value is, if you discover a flaw that could be exploited uh, in widely used software, you tell the software manufacturer and you help them fix it. Only in very rare occasions and only for very short periods of time should it be otherwise. Well, I'm not sure that's happening. Uh, and again, the public doesn't have any way of penetrating to know whether or not that's happening. But I think it's the case, uh, certainly with WannaCry, uh, that the government knew about a fault in the Microsoft uh, server software uh, and probably was using it for a couple of years. Uh, and then only uh, told Microsoft about it after it was going to leak anyway. Uh, that's not acceptable. And the reason it's not is, while it may be fun to use that in an offense uh, against the Russians uh, or somebody, the Russians are going to see that too. They're going to figure out that same vulnerability exists, and they're going to go after American companies, and we're not even going to know it. Uh, if we found a vulnerability in a widely used piece of software, other people will too. Uh, we're not on, uh, omniscient. Uh, and therefore, our obligation as a government should be to tell Microsoft or tell Apple or tell whoever it is right away. We, uh, we're running out of time, but I do want to end on a positive note because your book is uh, overall, I think, an optimistic look at cybersecurity. Uh, the last chapter does discuss tips, tricks, things you can do to protect your own cybersecurity. What's one thing that you would tell viewers they could do to better secure themselves on the Internet? Uh, use a password manager. Uh, and that password manager will generate your passwords for you. They'll all be different. Uh, never use the same password uh, twice. Uh, and never forget the password for your password manager. <laughs> That's the important detail. Uh, Richard Clark, great advice. Uh, your book, Fifth Domain, uh, The Fifth Domain, an excellent read. Um, thank you for joining us. Thank you.